Welcome to episode three of Blue Jays Happy Hour. I'm Nick Ashbourne, and I'm joined as always by Andrew Stoughton. And we have a very brief history in this podcast, but for the first time, I think the moment in Blue Jays land lives up to the name Blue Jays Happy Hour. They are coming off a sweep. I think that the vibe surrounding the Toronto Blue Jays might be at an all-time high for the season. They've always been a little bit dampered, especially with the Springer situation. But for the first time, it seems like people are feeling really good about this team. Stoughton, where are you at with the general Blue Jays mood? Yeah, I'm feeling really good about this team. It uh, It's taken a while to get here, for sure. Um, I think Bo Bichette said on, uh, on Thursday night or Thursday afternoon after the game, uh, you know, not, not everybody has been hitting at the same time. Like they haven't been getting production from everyone at the same time. They're starting to sort of feel like maybe they're doing that now. And I think that definitely adds to it. Uh, you know, Ryu going out and pitching like Ryu is, 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 is always good. Ross Stripling going out and pitching like the way Com- he did. Real competence from Ross Stripling, especially <laughs> after the first couple of batters of that, uh, of that game where you're thinking like, what is Ross Stripling doing out here? What are we going to have to suffer through? And you got to give him credit. He really turned that around. He did. I mean, I had, I had some scathing takes ready to go. Like midway in the first inning, I was just like copy and pasting tweets where everybody was ready to DFA him right there on the spot. Uh, and then he was great. It was, uh, it was unexpected, and I, I don't think I'm going to expect it going forward. But no, uh, I, I don't think you should. But it's, <laughs> it's okay to appreciate a moment. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and you know. And it's weird. It's uh, they they had they had the weird hiccup with Nate Pearson, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but now they got another guy, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about as well. Which is kind of like yeah, last week to balance we out all, the universe. We were all Manoa and Pearson, and uh, there's going to be a little repetition this week. But there, that's there, just there the way be, it is. I feel. But yeah, it's uh, you know I know we're gonna I know we're gonna talk about some individual individual guys. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, Bichette and Marcus Semyon just sort of. Sneaking up on everybody, having a great year when it really didn't feel for you know the first several weeks of the season that he was uh, having a great year. Like he felt if it, it was like he was competent, it wasn't great. The defense has been good, but now you suddenly look and him and Bichette have identical numbers. Yeah, um, it's like with Sammy, and I feel like when he was struggling, people maybe weren't critical enough. Not like they needed to be super critical, mm-hmm. but I don't think people really were internalizing how badly he was struggling for a time. And I feel like as he started to get hotter, people aren't paying quite enough attention to how good he's been lately. Like he's been their uh, their best hitter for a little while now. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's accurate. I mean, Vlad had his little run, and and I think what is it a twelve game hitting streak for for Semyon now? And I think it's eighteen of nineteen. He's got hits, and there've been multi hit games in there, and he just looks like everything's going way better. And that's sort of fits with what he sort of seemed to think like he needs more time to get going than some guys and that was maybe why last year didn't go as well for him he he just needs to get in a groove like the frank thomas you need to have the 100 plate appearances (laughs) and you know and that's why he got a lot of plate appearances in the spring i think to try to combat that a bit and uh lo and behold here we are uh you know a lot of season left but you feel real good about uh where Semyon is at and uh and i think a lot of these guys i mean guriel isn't really yet going but he's Hit a little, hit a little bit lately, or he's you know put some good swings. Danny Jansen had you know th- those three home runs in a row. I don't know if that was before last week's uh, podcast or not. I can't remember. Uh, his his weighted runs created plus is uh is positive 
as opposed to negative, which is still terrible. Like, but he's still he's in pitcher territory, but he's in like good hitting pitcher territory. That's right. Like right. the guys who are like, oh, he he, he could uh, get a single here. Yeah, and uh, and then Teoscar obviously is uh, is looking. It's so strange how he went down on the COVID list for ten days. He had COVID or whatever. Uh, I I don't know if he. I, I don't know what the hell happened there, but he couldn't do anything basically. And then he came back, and he's just been, you know, the silver slugger version of Teoscar, which he had not been before. Yeah, I, th- I think Hernandez is probably the guy who stands out the most to me in this last little run. So, in the 13 games since he's been back, you know, he's hitting 360, 429, 620. Like, absolutely crushing the ball, like exit velocity around 92 miles per hour, right where he normally is. And the thing that's crazy to me about what he's doing right now is his ability to avoid strikeouts. Because even mm-hmm. like good Teoscar Hernandez, really good Teoscar Hernandez, is striking out close to 30% of the time. I know we're talking about a 13-game sample here, but 12% strikeouts over 13-game sample is, I'm looking at it here, it's significantly the lowest he's ever had. The lowest I can find in another 13-game sample is 21.6 strikeout <laughs> rate. So, like, you can say this is all a tiny little run, and obviously he's probably not going to do this all year round. Like, he's not DJ LeMayhew. But that says something to me that his, you know, his discipline, his ability to make contact, something is going on with Teoscar Hernandez. And if he can give you, like, what he gave you last year, that's already exceeding expectations. If there's even something else in that bat, combined with the guys they're going to have hitting in front of him, that could be really exciting. I think that's absolutely right. And I think you sort of see, you know, we saw Rowdy Tellez have that last year where he stopped striking out nearly as much. And, you know, this year he's a bit lost. But uh, but that was a good thing. Randall Gritchick is another guy who, you know, the strikeout rate just keeps coming down. And it seems like it's an organizational thing. Uh, I know I've written about this. I probably talked about it already on, on one of our episodes too. But like Dante Bichette last fall talking about just hitting philosophy in general and a lot of the individual guys uh, it was all about two strike approach and you know kind of the you see the stuff you see in bow and about you know letting the ball get in deep but also one of the things he said was that you know there's gonna be weeks where for a lot of these guys the game's easy and they and they go on a tear and it's about you know what they do in the time in between those those times and really focusing on you know trying to trying to add in walks and hits whatever they can but I think walks was a big thing and and uh, and, and talking about uh, and just talking about two strike approach, I think he said that like the whole league hits 160 with two strikes, and and his advice to Gritchick was like you you know you can you can hit more than 160 is, with two strikes, and you're kind of laughing after that because then you know everybody without two strikes is pretty good, and and I you know I don't want to put too much into into especially Dante in particular because obviously there's a lot of people that that deserve credit at the hitters and in particular, but like Guillermo Martinez and Dave Hudgens and and you know they're, they're, it's more than just one guy, but he obviously sort of has a lot of gravity because of his history in the game because he's Bo's dad, but uh, he's a really interesting guy to hear him speak about that stuff, and which is why I keep coming back to it. And just to see it sort of manifest itself in the performances is uh, is encouraging because it sort of makes me think that it's, you know, it's not by it's not a fluke that, that a guy like Teoscar, a guy like Telez, a guy like Gritchick is, uh, is seeing success in that way because it's in the way that he was talking a year ago about, you know, trying to get them to that point. And when you have hitters like that, I think it's easy to conceptualize there being this firm trade-off of if you're going to hit for power, 
you're going to need to swing for the fences, and that's going to result in more strikeouts. And there is a relationship there, absolutely. But it's not a perfect relationship. And, you know, Randall Gritchick is a good example because he's someone who has lost a little bit of power in the last couple of years compared to sort of the stat cast darling he used to be um, compared to some of the isolated slugging numbers he used to put up. But what he's gained in taking that strikeout rate down has been significantly more. And if Teoscar Hernandez, and we're very early in this process, and I don't want to promise that he's a new Mm -hmm. hit or anything, but if he can do some of that, I think that he'll gain a lot more than he loses, because especially him, because her, his natural power is yeah. unbelievable. Like he, he clears the fences by a ton. So if he's not swinging quite as hard, or if he reins himself in a little bit more, and you know, I think he's someone, if he's fully healthy this year, I would have projected him for mid-30s home runs, maybe 40s home runs. Like I was a big believer in what he did, especially because of the way he was at the end of 2019. Like it wasn't just a 2020 sample. If that comes down to, you know, I don't know, if your projection of 38 comes down to 31 or 32, but the walk rate is up and, but he's collecting a lot more hits because he's striking out fewer times. That's a trade-off you're going to make 10 times out of 10. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And uh, no, it's, it's just, it's exciting to see what they're able, what they're able to do right now. Uh, obviously things starting to click, obviously it won't go on forever, but then you get Springer back too, which is, uh, uh, he's pretty good as we saw when like the, the 85% version of him, or maybe less, uh, came in and just, you know, single-handedly won that game, uh, in the previous sweep of Atlanta. Yeah. And, and you also have guys who haven't, I mean, you know, is Vladdy going to come down a little bit from where he is? Probably. Um, you know, Samian, I, what his stat line right now, I could see him keeping that up. Bichette, I could see him keeping up approximately where he's at. Maybe Teoscar comes down a little bit. There's also guys, like you mentioned Guriel, who's going to be better than he's been. You know, Kevin Biggio, we've talked about him on this podcast before. He had that big hit on that high 97-mile-an-hour fastball that everyone got excited about because they didn't necessarily mm-hmm. think that was in his bat. You know, I think that even if you and I land a little bit differently on his ceiling, he's someone who's going to be better. So just because yeah. a lot of the guys, especially at the top of the order, are swinging the bat well and maybe a little bit better than you expect, I don't think that means that there's going to be this huge regression crater because there's a lot of guys in sort of the back half of that order, even including Danny Jansen, who we've uh, jabbed at a little bit, who are going to be <laughs> better than they've been so far, plus the addition of Springer. Yeah, no, absolutely. Biggio is a guy that, uh, you know, as much as I, I've been on the on the train with everybody about being sort of down on him or, or, or well, yeah, down on him, but also just curious about how he makes it work, you know, how he continues to draw all those walks the more pitchers figure out that he can't do a ton of damage. Um, when he does damage, then that, that sort of puts that theory out the window. So uh, good on him for, for getting that hit and for, you know, he's he's looked better in the last few weeks. And and to be fair, you know, he's been productive before. And also he was dealing with a hand thing after he took that ball uh, off his hand in Kansas City, uh, which may not have uh, helped his power and his uh, ability to produce exit velocity as well. I know those have historically not been great for him, but uh, but that may have colored the start of his season a little bit as well. So, uh, you know, hopefully he's a guy who can continue to be uh, to be productive like that and get to give pitchers reasons to put him on base uh, because that's sort of how he's gonna he's gonna make his hay. 
Yeah, and I think you know he can get those walks even without that intimidation factor a little bit, just because pitching is really hard. Like I remember mm-hmm. Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs did a great series where he would do an inning with a certain pitcher's command, and he would show you this is where the catcher set up, this is where each pitch was, and he did it with guys like Mariano Rivera. And it's still crazy the degree to which pe- it's not crazy because pitching is really hard. But compared to our <laughs> conception watching the game, I think we think that these guys are just hitting the mitt again and again and again, and they're really not. So I think if you have that elite eye that Bijou has, there's always going to be that opportunity to work walks because even if pitchers are trying to throw you strikes, there's no guarantee that they're going to do that. That's true, and that's something that uh, Tyler Chatwood said this week about moving to the uh, to the first base side of the rubber is that it allows his. Uh, uh, the arm side run that he gets on his uh, on his uh, cutter to just sort of it, it it catches the plate even if he misses his spot a bit better than uh, than in previous years. I think that's the I believe that's the pitch he was talking he's about. He's missed but, a but, lot of spots in his career. That's for he sure. He certainly has. <laughs> Which is not uh, but, to but, but, shit on Tyler Chatwood because he's been fantastic, but historically yeah, speaking, the man has uh, missed a lot of spots. <laughs> not untrue. To keep the, the happy vibe rolling, I mean, we could go to Nate Pierce, and I'd rather just go to Alec Manoa and then let this hill just uh, go take a dive with Nate Pearson <laughs> afterwards. Let's reach the apex with Alec Manoa. Uh, I was watching his start the other night, you know, absolutely dominant. Like, it just, you know, it looks like guys don't have an answer from that, lo- at that level. We're getting sort of the free Josh Tolley vibes uh, from, uh, from him at this point. Is there anything in start two that, you know, changes your perception of Manoa or is it just kind of reinforcing things you already thought? No, I think it just reinforces the things I already thought, right? It uh, it was dominant. There wasn't as many strikeouts. He hit a guy, but... Hits per nine is a three, just for, you know, our podcast <laughs> listeners, I know that they want to know that we're keeping tabs on that stat. We're at three, That's right. <laughs> three hit batters per nine. That's still higher than you want to see, to be honest. A little bit, a little bit. And that, you know, that maybe makes you think, okay, like, is he, uh, is he just so overpowering that AAA hitters, uh, he can't touch him in a way that like big leaguers will not be as intimidated by. And he'll, if he loses that factor, maybe that's, that's gonna, you know, cause some bumps for him, uh, that he obviously isn't going to get at, at AAA, but you know, I, I don't need to see a lot of starts from him to feel pretty good about where he's at, especially considering, what I expect to see from from Anthony Kay uh, coming up, which I would love to see Anthony Kay pitch really well, uh, but I think that you know, by the time the second half of the year rolls around, it's Ryu, Ray, Matts, Manoa, and Pearson are pretty clearly your top five starters for the Jays, which are a pretty good top five. I, I'm I'm ready for that. I'm saying the second half of the season. I think Manoa could be up sooner than that for sure, especially Ross Atkins out there watching him, uh, and watching him look real good. Are you like you? I'm sure have much insight into this as you uh, you wrote about this and, and watched the game quite closely. I can't say that I really did. I looked more at your piece and then some highlights. But Yeah, the thing that stood out for me, I mean, you know, the fastball is there. It's got big velocity. We know that he, you know, he works right up at the top of the zone with it, which is what you're supposed to do when you've got that big fastball like that. Like there are a couple of bats that stood out to me. Uh, you know, he's facing Yasmani Tomas. I know not not a great hitter anymore, but a former... 30 home run guy in the major leagues and he just threw him three fastballs in the exact same spot and he just swung through all three of them and it was just so one of that you know that was in the second inning it was an early moment of like okay this is uh 
you know, this guy's blowing people away. And then the slider, one thing that's interesting about it is that he worked, he seemed to work it at least in this start, like front door a lot. Like he would bring it across the body of right-handed hitters and they would end up kind of jumping away or flinching. And he would just, he got a lot of called strikes with it. He got a couple called strikeouts with it. There was one at bat. He literally threw it four times in a row. And on the first pitch, the guy jumped back from it. I'm like, okay. And then on the fourth pitch, he jumped back the exact same way, even though it was the exact same <laughs> pitch. And he had seen it three times in a row. So that kind of tells you about the level of deception there is there. With Manoa, you know, there's the worries of, is the changeup a big enough pitch? Does that mean that left-handers might have an ability to kind of get the jump on him early in his career if they're able to catch up to the fastball. There's some valid concerns. Uh, we aired some of them out on last episode of the podcast, but it is pretty clear that you're not going to need that many more starts from him to be confident he has the stuff to get big league hitters out. And then the other stuff is, you know, is his command ability to turn over lineups and stuff. And we might not learn that from AAA, to be honest. So he could start a few more times, but we wouldn't necessarily, it takes more than five, 10 starts probably to get a firm grip of what a pitcher's command is. So we're not going to hundred percent. know. I have a question here. I don't want to throw around friend of the show too easily as we get started here. It could lose its value, but I'm going to give a friend of the show to uh, uh, Michael Hode at Yahoo Sports who posed me this question. So I thought I would just steal it and uh, use it on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Hode. The over under on Alec Manoa starts at AAA. He put it at 6.5. Um, what do you think about that line? And then we could also talk about that line for career starts at AAA, which might be a more interesting question, or starts at AAA before he gets the initial call up. Yeah, I think the career line is interesting because I'm definitely taking the under, even if we're including the two he's already made. Like yeah, six, six, I'm so, thinking I mean, like five. That would be my guess. Yeah, I mean, Pearson had 18 innings in AAA before they first called him up. And, you know, that was that was vast, obviously. But at some point, like, what more do you need to see? Uh, and they could be at that point already. I think that would be a bit soon. But if he goes out and has another start like these first two, like he's he he's too good for triple a at that point i think i know three starts isn't a lot either but yeah i think three to five is uh is more where i would land but i think you're right that it's it's an interesting question uh career-wise because you know it's as we've seen with pearson it's not necessarily going to be just a linear development thing where he hits the big leagues and takes off and does the same thing you know maybe maybe it's just harder to Force yourself to trust your stuff against big league hitters as it is against AAA hitters, and, and who knows what's going on with Pearson? I don't want to, I don't want to like armchair diagnose anything there, but uh, other than the mechanical stuff that we can see, uh, but yeah, I think Manoa, it, it wouldn't, it shouldn't shock anybody when any, uh, especially a pitcher, but when any minor leaguer, you know, does, doesn't take to the big leagues right at the first try. Yeah, I, I would cop out and take the over there because I think you probably get a, a rehab star at some point in his career okay, too. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, <laughs> yeah. Even if everything goes smoothly, he'll probably end up there at some point. But yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, question. I, yeah, I probably would have set the line at four and a half myself. My thought is that if he has, like, if he continues to dominate this way, maybe four starts. And if he has a bump in the road and start three, but then has two more dominant starts, four or five, I think he could still be on track for that. It, um, yeah, I mean, I've generally been a, a voice of caution just overall in terms of liking to have samples on guys, but 
Uh, you know, his development is happening really quickly, and there's a difference between succeeding at AAA and totally dominating AAA. And I think even mm-hmm. Nate Pearson was a guy who more succeeded at AAA than had this level of total like annihilation of opponents. Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely true. I think some of the lower levels, uh, yes, Pearson dominated, but but AAA was just like, okay, he's fine, and then they brought him up. So we shall see. And also, I mean, I, I don't know if we talked about this last week because we talked about these guys a lot last week, which is so strange. But this it's not our fault. On... It's our fault who's in the news cycle, okay? <laughs> like, we could have a whole podcast about Travis Bergen because we want to do it, but I don't think you guys be too interested. <laughs> But yeah, uh, like Keith Law talked about uh, on uh, on a podcast the other week about you know he thought he was the best college pitcher in in the draft when he was drafted in uh, in what twenty nineteen and uh, and that he's two years out from that and that's about the time that you would expect and that the you know the had a lot of it not been hidden away at the alt site uh, the development path that he's on is is pretty traditional it's not it's it's not as uh, um, outlandish it's not as wild as as people seem to think even though they look at the small pro innings total uh and obviously we're seeing it in the results of triple a like he just they if those hitters can't touch him it's time for him to be challenged at the next level and i think the fact that the jays have a need for it uh at the big leagues it, it just makes it make all the mo- all the more sense yeah it's a little different with a hitter too right i think if mm. you know if jordan groshans for instance had kind of emerged out of the old site and suddenly dominated double a moved up to triple a and knocked on the door i think that would be um, that would be a little bit harder for people to wrap their head around because it's all about getting these guys at bats and how competitive are those at bats against people who are your teammates who you've seen a million times at the alt site. But when it comes to pitching, you know, a lot of it is about stuff and it's not really mm-hmm. about, it's almost not about the interplay between you and the opponent as much as what can you with your arm generate. And it's very clear that what Manoa can generate is stuff that's hard to hit and, uh, I don't think he needs quite as many reps as you know a hitter needs to be ready for the next level of pitching. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was looking back because like Bo Bichette, if you look at the numbers that he put up in AAA, I think he like, did he break his arm or something like that, or uh, he had an injury in the year that he got called up. I don't know if that was 2019 as well, but but if you look at his AAA numbers, they are not super impressive, uh, which is I think because of exactly what you're saying. You're more looking at the quality of at bats and you're looking at uh, at other things, and you you know you can't. A hitter can go on a on a tear, or a hitter can have you know bad luck, and the the numbers may not bear out what he really is. Uh, in the same way that yeah, you can look at Manoa and a guy like that and just be like, okay, that's that stuff's gonna play. He's got the ball and he's doing bad things with it. So get him <laughs> up. Uh, speaking of guys who have fit that description in the past, it's time to yeah come down off the high and give a couple of minutes to Nate Pearson because. I, I don't know if, like, you know, his brief appearance in the major leagues was about as bad as an appearance can be. I mean, obviously, there have been worse ones in the history of baseball, but when you're talking about, you know, not making it through three innings and not striking anyone out and those walk totals and just, you know, that kind of scattershot inability to find the zone completely, putting hitters in good counts, everything that you can do negatively as a pitcher, he did in that outing. I don't know if that makes me think too differently about him as a pitcher because one you know i think almost anyone can lay an egg the greats can lay an egg uh you know the way he's kind of built himself back up from the injuries seems like it's been 
there hasn't been that much. You know, he's just had that one AAA start and this start, and he didn't get deep into the AAA start, so maybe he need more time. I think the better question is not, like, is Nate Pearson still good? I think both of us would agree Nate Pearson is still good. I think we'd both be help, hopeful about his future. It's I think it's is the way the Blue Jays handled this the correct way to handle it. Because should you bring Nate Pearson up in a situation where one bad outing is going to get him sent down? Yeah, uh, that would be the question. I mean... Obviously, they didn't expect him to pitch the way that he did, so so maybe that changed the equation a bit. But yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I was writing about it yesterday and and looking at, you know, where he was at, where the timeline was, because something Jeff Ware, the Buffalo the Buffalo pitching coach, said, uh, is that you know it's kind of still spring training for him, which is accurate. Like he's at the point, you know, they got him built back up after the injury, but he's really, you know, he was at fifty pitches the same amount of days ago from or the same amount of days between being at 50 pitches and his start on Sunday as about Ryu when he was at 50 pitches in the spring uh, and his opening day start, right? Like sort of the similar, similar timeline there. Uh, and that's Ryu. And that's a guy who's, you know, more you know comfortable with what he does and, and, and you know, obviously much more experienced and uh, not dealing with, you know, tweaking his mechanics to try to be less violent, quote unquote. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, that we could definitely question the readiness of Pearson to have stepped into that spot. And uh, I, you know, I'm maybe too soft on the team for stuff like this. Like, I kind of, I get it. I, I understand the impulse to be like, yeah, sure, let's see what he can do. Uh, especially if they don't think that it's going to be like a confidence issue for him. I think that kind of stuff gets overblown a bit uh, with fans who just think that these are, you know, I mean, obviously they're humans, but, uh, but. I, you know, I think he understands the business uh, quite well from anything we've ever heard from Nate Pearson and, and, uh, and isn't going to lose belief in his himself or his stuff uh, by getting sent back down after one bad outing. But, you know, if they'd had any other option, uh, I've, which I guess, you know, they could have gone with another bullpen day. It would have been just one game. It, we still probably would have been having a, a wonderful week uh, as we are. Um but yeah, I think there's absolutely room to to scrutinize that decision to bring him up that early. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I think I don't think that Nate Pearson's confidence is totally shot. Last week, I said that you know it's okay to bring Pearson up relatively quickly because maybe he can only give you four innings, and that's fine because it's sort of just a, a bullpen day light. And so at the time, I didn't I didn't have an issue with them bringing him up. And I realized that he was a little bit, yeah, maybe wasn't fully cooked from a building himself up and he could do that at the big league level. Obviously like the team, I didn't imagine he would pitch this poorly. I do think that Ross Atkins talks a lot about guys being ready and him wanting to bring them up and not have to send them down again. And I know it's not the end of the world. And like you said, progress isn't totally linear with these guys, but I just think that when you're talking about an Nate Pearson or an Alec Manoa, or, you know, when the time comes in Austin Martin, there's guys who are a little, you know, they're just a cut above the other guys. And there's, there should be some, a little bit more rope with them. Like I wouldn't have, if he had pitched like that and they said, you know, that was a disaster of an outing, but we're going to roll them out five days from now. I wouldn't have had a problem with that. Like I probably would have scrutinized that less than them saying let's bring him up and then bring him down and then who knows when they bring him back back up again like it's very easy for a season to become a lost season when you have that kind of bumpiness in it and i think that when you have a guy who's a pitching prospect of that caliber 
it's okay to give them a little bit more rope. I know they're trying to win now. And if it had been, I don't know, three outings and they'd all gone poorly, maybe it's a different conversation, but one outing for them to totally uh, kind of abandon a plan when plans and sort of, they are so important with these guys. You kind of lay out, this is what we want to do. It just seemed a little bit scattered for me for one outing to totally throw off their idea of what they want to do with Pearson. Yeah, I, I think that's fair too. I, but also I think, you know, you react, you react to the circumstances that are in front of you. And I could see also being like one start in, in the minors is probably not going to be enough. So we might as well send him down. And, and, I'm with you. I would have been totally fine. I kind of expected them to be like, well, we'll see how it goes next time around and, and keep them in the big leagues. Uh, so that definitely is surprising. And I don't know if, you know, I don't know how much we can read into what that means that they would do that to him, but obviously, I don't, you know, they, they saw what we saw and it was, it was pretty bad. And it, he, he does need obviously, and because this has been an issue with him before he does. sort of, it's so weird because, you know, he was pitching through something obviously last year, like he was really great at the start. And then it seemed like he was kind of hiding some discomfort that he was having before he went to, on the IL. Uh, so it's you, you kind of have to take some of those bad outings last year with a grain of salt. But he did, he he's had times where you know the mechanics go get off, and he can't get them back on track, and he can't he can't like self correct. And you know even with the pitching coaches, you know with a with, with Pete Walker's advice or whatever, he can't can't. And that's something that I think he needs to do, especially if they're going to continue to uh, to be tough for him to repeat at this stage and. You know, in time, this is why nobody's, you know, uh, jumping off the bandwagon or thinking he's not a problem. Like, in time, he will, like, he will just be able to repeat better. Repetition will help him and experience will help him. Uh, he's just sort of in that stage now where where the experience isn't there and the, the repetition isn't there. So, yeah, it is, it's weird to know what to do with him, especially when you have such a need at the big league level and you see what, you know, you know what he's capable of doing. He's obviously got the stuff to, to get big leaguers out when he's at his best, but... Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really, I don't know. It's, I, I understand why they got so scared by that outing that they're like, no, no, we better really take, dial this back instead of just trying to put a, like, a smiling face on it and, and go forward and hope for the best in the next outing. But, uh, but you hate to see them have to do it. It is odd because I think when you sort of zoom out from this situation, we're looking at it at the end of the year, for instance. You'll be, you'll say, oh, he had one kind of promising-ish start in AAA, and then he had one terrible start in the big leagues, and then he went to AAA for a bunch of time. I don't, I don't know how long that's going to be, but I assume that they're going to want to see some consistency from him now. Like, I don't think this is a he has one start in AAA and now they he does really well, and they're like, oh, it's all good now. I assume we're going to see him try and establish some consistency before they bring him back, especially if Manoa ends up going the other way. And so it, it, it Yeah, I like I th- I think Manoa will be up before Pearson's back. That's that's a guess obviously, but I don't think that's No, I think that I would agree with that. I'd agree with that yeah. guess. So it, it it is weird when you look at the, his Pearson's whole season, you'll see a timeline where one bad start in the big leagues resulted in a, a far longer time in the minors than you would think. But again, it's uh I mean, we'll see how it plays out. I'm still very high on Nate Pearson. I'm very confident in what he can do as a pitcher. Like we're talking about with Manoa, you can see the stuff, what he's capable of producing with that arm. He's unbelievably talented. So when you mention that like future Blue Jays rotation that has the three guys that are going for them now plus Manoa plus Pearson, like that's 
that's not hard to envision. The only thing that makes it hard to envision is just injuries because injuries happen mm-hmm. and, you know, we're dealing with people coming off this weird 2020 and God knows who's going to be available by the time it's August, September. Yeah, and and what I will say, though, I guess about the one start thing is that it's also, uh, yes, it was one start, obviously, but it was also like multiple innings and multiple like chats and multiple chances to to get it back together and then lose it again. And, and you know, I mean, I think if, if it was like he had one wobble in the in the game and 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 had the same line, which could have easily happened, like it would have, you know, that would be maybe less concerning than like it just unraveling every time he went out onto the mound, like every inning that he was asked to pitch that, uh, you know, even, even with no, when there were moments of promise and when there were moments where it was like, Oh, okay. He found the zone with that one. It would still just not quite get there. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I do think clearly he will benefit from some, some consistency in the minors and uh, probably should have been given that before. Uh, they brought him up if they were going to be giving him such a short leash, as you say. I've framed most of the sort of the talking points in this episode around sort of positive, negative. This one is is kind of ambivalent, I guess, for me, is the sort of the news that broke the other day that the Oakland Athletics are potentially threatening to relocate. Now, how seriously to take this story is part of the story. And I think a lot of people aren't taking this story particularly seriously because a lot of people see this as the club's attempt to essentially extort close to a billion dollars from the city in public funding. And for a lot of people, that is the beginning and end of it. And there, I, I, I believe there's validity to that. But once in a while, we get the opportunity to talk about Montreal and Vancouver and <laughs> yeah. the hope that springs eternal there that baseball can return. I know that I, I went to university in, in Montreal. Like I have a great deal of love for that city. We remember, you know, the expos and the blue Jays expos exhibition series and how much fun that was. Do you think that fans of these places should have any kind of hope for I don't know what the time span is. Let's let's not go with this exact time span yet. I have a question on that later. But if you're living in Vancouver or Montreal, is this news something that registers with you, or is this news just sort of more political bullshit that you'd put to the side? <laughs> Probably the latter. I mean, I think I mean Vancouver obviously could be a big league city for sure. I think baseball would be. Uh, foolish to ignore Vancouver, but doesn't seem to be on the radar in the same way as, say, you know, Portland or Charlotte or Austin or Vegas or a bunch of American cities, which I think will probably get looked to first. Montreal obviously has other things going on, but I think the A's being in the West maybe doesn't this doesn't affect them, even if you are allowing yourself to be affected by it. But mostly, I think it is just that it's that stadium power play that the the team didn't even seem to really want to do. Like I think there were reports that you know Manfred said. You know, they just had it in their back pocket. Like at some point, if you need to, uh, the commissioner's office is going. You know, will will be behind you in trying to extort this money to try to get a better stadium deal, uh, which is what we see happen. And you know, I know that the Expos moved. That obviously was a different situation and a situation that had sort of been left to, to rot on the vine for a very very long time. Uh, but you also see, you know, I think uh, you know the classic 
Canadian sports writer mistake is to bring things back to hockey. But I think about, you know, the way that Hamilton has been teased by an, about the prospect of an NHL team for a long time, though that's gone away, I think, in recent years. But also, like, just the fight that Gary Bettman put up to keep the Phoenix Coyotes or the Arizona Coyotes mm-hmm. in that market, you know, to like, like to, you know, for absolutely no reason, just a, a terrible situation there i don't i don't understand why they've been so insistent on making it work I don't austin know matthews is still in the nhl and they have hope that he'll come there, there someday and <laughs> totally change everything in arizona but i think that to me that that uh that gives some insight into what leagues really probably think about relocation more than i know i guess the nfl's had some relocation uh but that's the nfl but i i think that the the, the insistence on not losing that market, I think is uh, uh, is telling, and that the league probably just doesn't want to do that. I think I, I don't understand why they don't expand. I think expansion could help uh, in a lot of ways. I think that you know the expansion fees will be enormous because that's just what the values of teams are. I think watering down the the player pool couldn't hurt. You know, considering some of the issues that we have in the game, and uh, you know, you sort of always see at post expansion uh, hitting numbers go up. Uh, which is what the league is looking to do lately. Not very um, successfully. <laughs> not very successfully at all. Oh my god. But uh, but yeah. So I I would I would think that Montreal's hope is more there and in whatever the hell the Rays are, are doing. Um, that that whole thing, which I you know just completely didn't take seriously at first, uh, and now can, you know can't. To, can't take my eyes off it whenever news breaks about what's going on there, which I think is very similar uh, in that, you know, there's real estate deals to be made and there's 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 a whole backside, backstory of, you know, what's going on with, uh, you know, with the, with the Rays trying to make use of that property and where the trop is and the city or whoever has the rights to it. And there there's, you know, it would be unsurprising if if it ended up you know, with a, a, a new stadium deal in Tampa and Montreal on the outside looking in. Uh, but I, I think that there's some hope there. I think Vancouver less. The one thing that, and it's interesting because I think a lot of times we take our impression of public sentiment from Twitter. It's just natural mm-hmm. if you're on the platform a lot and you see the news and you see people reacting to the news. And it's important to remember that what's going on on Twitter is not necessarily reflective of what's going on in the real life uh, minds, especially of voters. I think that's something that we've seen over a long period of time is that the discourse on Twitter is not necessarily reflective of a lot of voters. But it does seem that the appetite for public funds to go towards stadiums is declining slightly. And it does seem that people are having their eyes opened a little bit to how silly it is for cities to be pouring in these massive amounts of money uh, to sports franchises to help billionaires build their, you know, their stadiums. And Mm -hmm. as a result, there is a slight sliver for me of thinking maybe that this time it'll be different. Like there's a little bit of a chance in my eyes that, you know, maybe... I don't know if it's Oakland or Tampa Bay. I don't know if MLB will be the one where it happens. But I think that there's a chance that in the next few years, there's a situation like this where a team tries to extort a city for a bunch of money to build something like this. And the city kind of pushes back and says, this is not really what the people want. And they don't want us spending this much money on something like this. 
And especially when a lot of the proceeds are just going to go into some billionaire's pocket. Now, the flip side of that is the places they're going to be expanding to, those places will then have a harder time building stadiums. So I don't know if it's going to lead directly to an outcome where there's more people moving around. But I do think that public sentiment has moved a little bit. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that. But though also, you know, you may see cities trying to entice teams away, right? When the when there's an unstable situation like this. I mean, Atlanta's different, but like Cobb County, uh, you know, going you know, offering money to have the Braves uh, move north, which I'm, I, you know, I, I assume they wanted to do anyway. Uh, but but you know, there different jurisdictions can can have uh, you know play against each other within the lo- their own local markets. And that's another thing in Tampa too, right? Like the, the Razor in St. Pete, they wanted to build a stadium in Tampa. There's, you know, there's all sorts of different levels of government all over the place. The Jays, as we know, work with Dunedin government and they got themselves a whole lot of public money, which Dunedin seems very happy about. And they, you know, pretty much, I don't know if there's a study that has ever said, yeah, you put this much money into, into a stadium and, uh, and this meant this much, uh, you know, you're going to get this much income and revenue from you from probably don't. My, yeah, I, like, my guess is you yeah, don't. They all they all say it's a it's a terrible yeah, it's idea like, to give this it's money. It's very away. sort of trickle down economics, it, right? It's like, oh, if yeah. you spend this money on these people, have a bunch of money, it's everything's going to work out. But they seem real happy about it, or at least you know the people that get interviewed in the papers, which are like the business leaders. So obviously, it's <laughs> colored. And the Blue Jays one is especially egregious because they clearly put all the money into the uh, the player development complex, and like the stadium got a new coat of paint. But like, I, it's better. But like, clearly, a lot of money went into uh, the other site that is just like closed off to the public. But uh, but obviously, the big thing was to keep the Jays in town. Um, but yeah, well, you know, I, I, it wouldn't stop me from buying an Oakland A's jersey at this point, and it wouldn't make me buy a Montreal Expos jersey. A's and Rays gear is safe to buy. I know we've got a lot of A's and Rays fans who listen <laughs> to the podcast. I want you guys to know it's safe to buy that gear. My uh, my question on this then is, if you got a hundred dollars burning a hole in your pocket and you're desperate to lay it down on something, what kind of odds would you need? to feel comfortable putting it on an MLB franchise coming to Montreal or Vancouver in the next 15 years. You can split up Montreal and Vancouver if you want, or you can use them as one. So let's say I gave you 10 to one odds. Would you be willing to throw down that hundred dollars? On Montreal? Yes. On Vancouver. Love you, but no, I don't think that's happening anytime soon, but Montreal, I maybe I'm just an optimist. Maybe I just, uh, just want an excuse to go move to Montreal, but like, don't we all? I, I, right, it, but it, it it seems like it seems like there there's something there. Like they really have a movement, and they really have, you know, big time money people involved and invested. They already have you know land that they're looking at, which I don't you know who knows how concrete any of that stuff is until they actually put a shovel in the ground uh, or you know get a team at first. But but I I can still see it happening though. Also at the same time. Um, the Blue Jays and I'm sure MLB as well loves this thing where the Jays are Canada's team, and that's whole that's that's part of the whole Mark Shapiro project, right? Is that you know we can be a behemoth, quote unquote. Um, I don't know if you're gonna win part because like, of you that. can be Canada's team, but you're not necessarily gonna win over tons of Quebec. You know, what I mean, I I just don't think that there's that's fair. I think that Montreal and Toronto. I mean, you know, we're both 
we both have our thumbs on the scales, right? Because we both like to see this happen. But I, but yes. trying to speak somewhat objectively, I don't think that a, a team in Montreal is going to siphon off too much Blue Jay support, except probably in parts of Atlantic Canada. Like we talk about New Brunswick. Yeah. And yeah, parts of Atlantic Canada overall um, will be closer to Montreal to visit the stadium and, you know, might, depending on the state of the Jays, be tired of the Jays at that point and look for an opportunity to jump ship, especially if it's the ends up being the Rays, uh, if they have a good brain trust and all that. But yeah, I don't know. I, so if I brought those odds down to five to one, would that would that change your answer? That would, I think, change my answer. That's that's tougher. I, I The optimist in me and the person who, like you say, wants to see it happen, I would, would probably... I would probably still make that bet, but I would I would have to be like very willing to accept that my hundred dollars is never coming back. Yeah, okay. So we're sitting between a twenty percent and a ten percent confidence in an MOB in Montreal for fifteen years. I don't know if that makes us more confident than the average person or less. Maybe more than people outside Montreal and maybe less than some people inside Montreal. Uh I know. Everyone wants to see it happen. Everyone wants to see, you know. The, the Leafs and Habs are having their first playoff series in forever coming up. I think that's a lot of fun. I think people would love to see an Expos-Blue Jays rivalry. The Blue Jays don't have a great rivalry in the AL East or just in baseball in general. The Texas thing is flamed out. The Rays thing mm-hmm. doesn't really have much animosity as Montoyo and Cash are basically best friends. And then ha- and half those <laughs> games have to take place in the Trop. And then Baltimore, who cares? And Yankees and Red Sox, you're just not going to force your way way into that one. So, yeah, it's hard to be a rival when the when the other team's fans do do not care about you at so all. Montreal, Montreal is probably the Blue Jays' <laughs> best hope to have an incredibly compelling rival someday. I've heard people being like, "No, they got to be in the the National League," you know, the and. Uh, that's crazy. That's no. It seems yeah, like a, the, the expos in the in the AL East would yeah, be seems amazing. Seems like a terrible. Idea. That would be the value. Okay, yeah. before we wrap this up, we're gonna do a little uh, quick look ahead to the to the weekend series that we did this last week, and I feel like it's part of what we promised as the concept of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> is there anything that really stands out to you this week? I mentioned my notes here. Chase Anderson starting is like the worst remember some guy's old friend i can imagine like he was bad with the jays but not historically bad he didn't have really any memorable moments i don't think you care to see him pitch against your team and he's not quite bad enough where you're like oh this is gonna be great they're gonna crush chase anderson he's not good but he's not quite that like circle the pitcher on the calendar this is gonna be awesome guy yeah and i don't think he he wasn't tanner roark right like he didn't have developed the animosity with Jays fans where he would circle. But, I, I mean, got to feel pretty good about this lineup going up against Chase Anderson. Like, I saw enough of him last year uh, to at least know that. I'm curious about uh, the Real Muto thing. He's on the, the COVID list because he didn't feel well. And it, I, I saw people suggest maybe the Phillies are, are you know, manipulating something. I don't know if because I, – I don't know. If he, if he doesn't play, that's a that's a plus for the Jays. And I assume that if he's on, if he's on the list that he can't. But – uh, yeah, and but I'm not sure what's going on. Without there. him, it's like Bryce Harper is the fun guy to watch on the Phillies. I don't think we need to talk too much about Bryce Harper. Everyone knows you're either for or against, and we know what he brings to the table. The one guy I did want to point out before we left was Vince Velasquez because he's someone mm-hmm. who strikes me as like the 
quintessential Blue Jays trade deadline target. A guy who's on an expired contract, really good stuff, has generally underperformed that stuff. He's exactly, he's, you know, he's the Robbie Ray. He's the Francisco Liriano before that. He's the Joaquin Benoit even, the guy who is not working out with his current team, but it's easy to envision making some tweaks and finding something with him. So if the Blue Jays are, yeah, needing that fourth, fifth starter, the trade deadline, which they probably will, and if the Phillies fall out of the NL East race, which I would also guess they probably will, that is the type of guy that I could very easily see them going after. So he's someone that maybe if you're a Blue Jays fan, you might want to take out an extra long look at this weekend. You're absolutely right. He does sort of fit the profile. Okay, we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in to episode three of Blue Jays Happy Hour. Continue to find us on all the platforms. I don't think anyone is icing us out anymore, which is great. Uh, continue to... <laughs> leave reviews i think last time i checked we had all five star reviews on apple Podcasts. if someone wants to come in with a four we'll respect that you know honesty is respected by us but uh you know the perfect record is cool too yeah, my name is Hall.